Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Authentic Audience Podcast. My name is Krista Ritma, and I am your host. This is my first, no, this is not my first episode recording from Santa Cruz. This is my third. (laughs) This is my first episode recording from our new place. We were staying at an Airbnb um, in between moving out of SF and moving into Santa Cruz. So I am recording in my very own room with my very own things and I am so happy to be here. Uh, We've made a lot of changes in the last couple of weeks. It's been super beautiful. And this conversation today couldn't have come at a better time. I feel like they always do. Amy Ann Cadwell, I... um, Actually, a couple months ago is when I discovered her and then I saw her booking come through for this week. And I was so excited because this is a conversation that I am leaning into more and more. And I'm a little embarrassed to say I haven't leaned into sooner. So this talk is all about uh, social entrepreneurship and companies doing good. (laughs) What a concept. She is the founder, co-founder of a company called The Good Trade Um, It's an online, basically, uh, digital destination for lifestyle content, and she reaches 50 million highly engaged readers um, through their website, newsletter, and social media, and it's all about uh, fair trade, sustainability, ethically sourced materials, all of these things that we should be talking about, and what I love about her is she doesn't make you feel dumb um, for not being more aware of this conversation and she's just so accessible and it's reflected on her website and it's reflected in her business. We talk a lot about social entrepreneurship, about relationships with our audience, with our readers, our responsibilities as conscious business owners and our responsibilities, even if you're not a business owner, to doing business for good. So it was a really beautiful conversation. Obviously, this is coming up a lot um, in different conversations that I've been having. So I'm going to be leaning more into this and bringing on more um, founders and entrepreneurs that are having this conversation as well. So really appreciate this. Uh, After listening and uh, asking her these questions, what I found is this is another win for authenticity. She is super successful and it's so obvious to me why. And I know that's a big conversation I like to have is why companies succeed and why companies fail and authenticity wins again. So really enjoyed talking to Amy Ann this morning. I don't know if I mentioned her name yet. I got too excited to tell you what it was about. Amy Ann Cadwell uh, is founder of The Good Trade and I hope you enjoy our combo. Amy Ann Cadwell is co-founder and CEO of The Good Trade, a premier digital destination for sustainable lifestyle content, annually reaching 50 million highly engaged readers through The Good Trade's website, newsletter, and cross-channel social media presence. Cadwell is also an angel investor and advisor in early-stage consumer brands with a strong social mission. She has been recognized by Forbes and is a frequent speaker at conferences such as the Heart Series, Blog her and the Yellow Conference. Amy Ann has a Master's of Arts in Social Entrepreneurship from Pepperdine and a Bachelor of Arts from Rockheart University. Welcome, Amy Ann. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Um, 
just to start, how are you? Where are you? Tell me all the things that are happening in your life today. Yeah, yeah I'm good. It's um, unusually cold in Los Angeles, so I am enjoying kind of the more brisk weather this morning. Yeah, I'm in LA. I um, I live here. Our headquarters are near downtown Los Angeles. We Started the publication about five years ago when I was in grad school, um, and now we have a team of, of full-time editors that work from our office here in LA, which is where I am this morning, and um, yeah. Amazing. Well, um, I was hoping, I've, I'm quite familiar with The Good Trade, as are 50 million other people around the world, but if people are not familiar, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what The Good Trade is, who you serve, and I'd love to hear the story. I'm sure you've answered this a million times, but um, how you came up with this idea, one, and two, how it actually succeeded because I feel like there's a lot of people that want to do something like this and you've managed to do it, which is incredible. Um, So if we could just sort of dive in there. Sure. Yeah. So... Um, I moved to LA six or seven years ago to study social entrepreneurship in grad school. And, you know, during my studies, I was exposed to this way of thinking that asked more of businesses than merely existing to maximize, you know, profit or shareholder value. And so I, I really had this, this desire to, um, tell the stories of companies and organizations that were working to do better by both people and the planet and to connect those brands to consumers who were concerned about sustainability and about social impact. And um, it was during grad school that I watched the documentary, The True Cost, uh, Mm -hmm. which I highly recommend. Have Have you watched it? Um, I have. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. So for those who might not know, the documentary tells a really compelling story of how fast fashion specifically um, is depleting their resources and leveraging, you know, pretty unthinkable labor conditions to pass along a cheap, cheap in quotations, uh, cost to the end consumer. And so it, it was in grad school, I began really focusing my graduate studies on labor and sustainability issues in fashion, but then across other industries as well. And really finding that, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of profit are generated each year from um, laborers who are not being paid a living wage. And yet they produce many of the products that we eat and wear and bring into our homes every day. And and this mass consumerism also has really um, massive implications for sustainability as well. And so, yeah, so that's kind of the long-winded version of how I became kind of curious about my own role as a consumer to support both businesses, but then also lifestyle decisions that align with fair trade labor practices and values for sustainability. And so I just started writing. My husband and I um, had had a publication before that we had sold, and uh, it was like a local Kansas City blog. We reviewed like restaurants and the local art scene in, in Kansas City. Cool. And yeah, it was really awesome. And when we moved to LA, we felt like it was a little disingenuous to keep running this local Kansas City blog from. LA. So um, (laughs) we sold the publication and then I was in grad school. Both, both my husband and I were working 
Um, and, but we were still kind of itching to like create or have this kind of side hobby of having a, a blog or a publication. And I really felt like, you know, this is what I was learning and, and researching and what I, I wanted to, um, learn more about and kind of create a community around. I love it. And now you have 50 million readers across the globe. That's incredible. So my question was, do you feel like consumers are trending in this direction? And I'm guessing you would say yes, (laughs) which is hopeful. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so, I think, exciting and encouraging even in the last five years since we've started the publication, just the way the conversation has shifted. And, mm-hmm. you know, five or six years ago, it still felt, even, even the conversation around sustainability felt very academic and very like kind of unaccessible and unapproachable. And I, I think we're still dealing with that um, as a part of the conversation, but it's become much more mainstream and much more, um, you know, top of mind for people that I think really genuinely care to know the story behind the things that they're bringing into their life and their home and the impact of their own kind of individual choices. And so it's a really hopeful, I think, positive message that one, we we have the agency as um, individuals to make choices that then collectively together really shape and shift larger conversations in in you know policy and larger corporations and um Yeah. So one example of this that I love is one of our first pieces that we ever published was a guide, a roundup to fair trade clothing brands. And we, our goal was Mm. to find 35. So 35 fair trade clothing brands, um, that we were vetting for kind of their labor practices and also sustainability and it was like pulling teeth to find 35 brands. This is like six years ago now that we were doing the research and, um, you know, fast forward to today and we literally have hundreds of brands that we review every, we, we update this guide about quarterly. And there are so many brands that would fit that criteria that we had six or seven years ago. And now we get to expand the criteria to also include, you know, other types of ethics like inclusivity and, you know, size inclusivity and, and representation and accessibility for price and convenience and, you know, kind of all of the things that make a more sustainable brand more competitive in, um, in today's consumer landscape. Yeah. I mean, I, I always look at things with my marketing hat and I believe the power, I think marketing is just good storytelling really. And, um, the fact that, I, I'm seeing this trend. So like I'm seeing consumers and the people that I'm talking to. And it's great because my clients happen to be all pretty much conscious business owners for the most part or healers or artists in some way that are not exploiting anyone. They're not mass producing. They're yeah. just selling their gifts and their art and people care. And I'm really noticing this trend. And I had this girl on a couple of weeks ago and she's the CEO and founder of Globe In. Okay. And yeah. um, it's like the number one, I think, subscription box for fair trade and um, supporting artisans all over the world. And we really dived, dove in to this conversation. And I feel 
now after seeing you come through right now, um, I just moved to Santa Cruz. I'm making all these decisions to, we actually bought a light, a lamp yesterday. And my husband was like appalled at how expensive it was. And my (laughs) brother-in-law who lives here was like, it's because it's locally made. Like we're not, you know, like we're, we're making a change here, you know, and we signed up for the produce box instead of going whole foods. And it's just like these little decisions that I'm making. And now having you on, I feel like this is a conversation I'm supposed to be leaning into Mm -hmm. and, um, talking to more people like this. And, you know, now when I talk to her, her name's Lisa and she was talking all about the fair trade law and how it's been around for 40 years and how people are just now learning about it. And then once I had that conversation with her, I went to Miami and literally all I could see is like fair trade boutique, fair yeah, trade, app, yeah. like, and it's just now popping out to me more and more. And I go in and I'm like, this is where I want to shop from. And it was just like such a silly shift. But what I'm bringing back to with this is what the good trade does is it helps you and what you mentioned with lifestyle decisions, because you make it, you make it so easy. Well, that's good. <laughs> you know, like you make it so easy yeah. to be able to find these brands, which I think a lot of yeah. people are still, really as, you know, embarrassed I, as I am to say yeah. it. Like I'm really busy and conven- totally. as we all are and convenience is still a factor. And so yeah. when you have, you know, companies and businesses that are doing the work that you're doing, I just... I think that there's really no excuse (laughs) at this point. Well, I think you bring up a good point because I think this conversation can be exclusive and intimidating. And I've felt that very much in my own life. And that's where we have really um, drilled down on our tone as a publication to be, Mm. to want to really come alongside our reader. You know, it's like we want to come alongside and provide that resource that makes this conversation a little bit more simple and and helps our reader with like, what is that next step you can take in your life in literally like one area, you know, like (laughs) your kitchen, you know, and like here are some really accessible zero waste kind of steps you can take in your kitchen. But I think people get overwhelmed when they feel, um, when there's like guilt or judgment in the tone of the conversation, I don't think that's helpful or motivating to people. I think that they feel activated when there's like very clear, very specific, very um, simple, small steps that they can take. And then, and then I think that really snowballs, you know, people start to make small lifestyle decisions in the, in how they're approaching transportation or food or, or clothing. And, um, and then that kind of starts to become a mindset that, that permeates other areas of their life as well. But, but yeah, I think that's such, you know, that's a feeling that a lot of people have on the convenience side that, that we're really wanting to help answer that question of like, how can you meet your needs um, in a in a simple way that's also sustainable. But then also price is a big part of this yeah, conversation. You just read my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's something that we've been really excited about this movement towards secondhand um, in fashion as like a, actually a more high-end fashion direction towards vintage and repurposing clothing, recycling, you know, there's 
there's definitely the quality over quantity conversation in in any aspect of sustainability. So a lifestyle change where you are investing in locally made, well-made you know, furniture, and that's going to last you maybe decades longer than buying yeah. something less, uh, you know, less expensive and, and more cheaply made. So there are ways to make the economics work in the long term very easily um, in that way. Yeah. But then, but it involves a behavior change and a lifestyle change, and that's where I think you know, starting with with one or two areas of of someone's life or their shopping habits can be. A great first step. Yeah. And I think too, for me, you know, a lot of people don't get the opportunity um, to go actually overseas and see the way a lot of these things are being made and actually meet artisans that have a face and have a family and have a personality. And it's not these just like faceless people creating things. And for me, I told this story on the podcast with Lisa and I'll briefly tell it to you. So I go to Nepal a lot. Um, I, I co-lead trips there with a friend of mine who's very immersed in the culture and they're like cultural immersion trips. And, um, there are these rugs and she is like dying to bring these back. She has, you know, an idea of potentially having a fair trade store here, back here where she, um, sort of supports these different artists that she's now friends with in Nepal. And to get these rugs, there's this one particular rug and I'm actually looking at one right now because I did have one and I paid him a lot of money money for it. And to get the rug, you not only have to fly to Nepal and then take a helicopter (laughs) from Nepal to somewhere else, but it's a a two week trek into the little village where these women are making the rugs. And then still, because it's Dolpa women that are making the rugs, but still, if we were to pay somebody in Kathmandu, for example, to go do that, we don't know if those women are getting the money. Sure. Yeah. So we can't place a bulk order unless and until we actually make a month trek to Dolpa and give them a phone. So that we can actually call them and talk to them and make sure. And when I had this experience, you know, so I did buy one rug from this guy, but it, it still felt like, I don't know if the woman who made this is going to ever see a dime and fair trade, the fair trade law isn't really happening in little remote towns in in the Himalayas. And, and so when you do have money and you do want to actually spend, you know, the price and like spend more knowing that this is going to the right place it's really still in a lot of places hard to even get the money to the right people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so once I had that experience, I don't know if it just shifted something small in me, but it's like, you can't unsee it now. And then Lisa, I came home and she came on my podcast and now I'm speaking to you. And there's actually another conversation that I'm leaning into around a company that I'm thinking of working with. And it's just, I, it's everywhere for me right now. And I can't not see it. You know, when we were shopping at this store, there was this cute little table that was like locally made for $200. It looked like a, a, you know, somebody had refurbished it or, you know, painted it again. And I'm just like, that's value to me and for so many other reasons now. And I think the other thing that came up and I actually saw it on your website this morning is this idea. I'm sort of behind on a lot of fashion trends. Um, 
it's not really my area of <laughs> genius. Priority. <laughs> well, no, I love it, but I just, I don't, I have friends that like really care a sure. lot more about fashion than I do. But this idea of capsule wardrobe yeah. is um, amazing to me because it's, I always find when I can find those pieces of clothing that are, um, you know, better made, well-made, and I can wear them with anything forever. It's like a dream for somebody actually who doesn't. And I was just looking at your site and I saw like the 10 best, you know, sustainable or what is it right here? I can't find it right now, but it was just under, oh, it's under vintage shopping. Um, talking about the capsule wardrobe. And I just think that regardless of, you know, your budget, there is always a way um, to do this kind of, to make these kind of decisions. And I'm realizing that more and more, how many options we do have. Um, I was going to actually jump back though, because I wrote down a question for you while we were talking and then I went off on a tangent (laughs) a little bit. Um, I wanted to actually talk more about social entrepreneurship because this is your company. Um, It's very successful, but um, I also see that you're an investor and studied social entrepreneurship. And I am finding that, so maybe you could talk a little bit about what social entrepreneurship is um, Mm -hmm. and the decisions that get made that go into it and sort of how I'm finding more and more companies these days, like if you don't have a a mission Mm -hmm. or like a mission for good or a social mission, you're kind of an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't know. Can we talk more about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think social entrepreneurship is or a social enterprise um, is defined by having a social mission at kind of the core of its reason for being. And the way that that our corporate laws are set up in the United States is that a corporation exists to maximize shareholder value. That's that's literally, you know, the legal purpose and reason for being. And so social enterprise kind of carves out this um, this added value of also creating good uh, for society. And I think I think an important part of the conversation around social enterprise and social entrepreneurship has been, um, so for example, you know, you saw early stages of this five, 10 years ago, like Tom's, like a give back model Mm -hmm. where companies had a charity aspect. But then the conversation evolved appropriately and quickly to, you know, really ask the deeper question of like, well, is this a social enterprise if it if it gives away shoes, but then it's ruining local economies for shoemakers? You know, like, are you actually having impact or, you know, are you do you have a give back component? But um, are you still using child labor to create the shoes that you are, um, um, you know, then donating to other people? And so. I think the conversation around social entrepreneurship evolved quickly to broaden to be not not only do you have a social mission, but are you considering all the the um, community stakeholders in your company? So that means, you know, are you considering the end consumer? Is this product good for the person that will will ultimately use it? Is it is the process like healthy and safe for those? 
um, who are creating the product, your employees, you know, are you taking care of your employees? Are you taking care of the community where you operate your business? Are you having a positive impact on the community or a negative impact in terms of environmental sustainability and, and, you know, waste and byproducts and all of that. And so, um, you know, social entrepreneurship, I think is like a direction rather than a destination because it's, Mm. there's no, there's no such thing as like an infallible ethically or sustainably infallible process. Like in creating business and creating commerce, there's always going to be waste. There's always going to be, you know, a, a level of negative environmental impact, all of that. But I think, you know, thinking about conscious business and social entrepreneurship is, um, is these companies taking responsibility for essentially what they produce and how they produce and who that Mm -hmm. affects. Yeah, I think it's such a good conversation. And I just have so many questions around it. Um, I guess, you know, too, I, I'm also an entrepreneur and I have a lot of listeners who aren't entrepreneurs or wouldn't necessarily define themselves as entrepreneurs. And maybe they're working for a company or a corporation, but are still really invested in social impact. And I guess, what could we do if we're not in charge? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think there's definitely room for this conversation to be on a personal level. So in, um, in grad school, we talked about being social entrepreneurs, which mm, was, I love that. Yeah, it's so like silly. I love all the different, you know, terminology that you get in school, which is right. later you're like, actually, that was really helpful. <laughs> um, the idea of being a social entrepreneur is like, how can you bring social good like immediately within your role? Um, in a company. And so whether you are a barista or you are, you know, director of sales or wherever you fit in a company, like you have some realm of influence. Um, and so that is, I think that is a really exciting question to ask, like, you know, for, for a barista to ask, like, how can I make someone's day better? You know, how can mm-hmm. I bring social good to my team, to the people I'm interacting with? And then, of course, like, how can I advocate for more sustainable practices within my company? You know, can I advocate for, like, fair trade blends of coffee? Can I can I right. speak to someone about that? You know, um, but I do think on a personal level, I think sometimes we underestimate, like, just human kindness and, you know, our, our, our own, like our own waste within our, um, day-to-day like work life and our own, the impact of our own choices. I'd also say like, it's so powerful when you have that coworker that just like shows up with like their, packed lunch in a zero waste container and, you know, has their reusable water bottle. And these are obviously like really small things, but I think that they signal to other people that, um, your values and, and some of that really has a kind of contagious effect. Yeah. I think it's super beautiful. It's more like a, 
you know, what came to mind just listening to you list all those things. It's like more of a mindset or like yeah. a way of being, being versus yeah. like, you know, I think a lot of companies and, you know, I've, I think I could even be guilty of this is like, okay, I'm, um, you know, I have that pro bono client that we take on. So mm-hmm. we spent five hours a month working on them. And so that box is checked and we can like go on and be assholes over here. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that a lot of people sort of you know, just thinking about it can fall into that. Okay. We're checking the bro- the box of social good. And it's not like a box to be checked. It's like a way to live. <laughs> and I think, yeah. Yeah. We have this like constant mantra. Like we're trying to find companies that don't do good companies that are good. You know, it's mm, like, totally, yes. it's sustainable when it's just like an added value to, to for a company to give back in one way, but then create, you know, harm in other areas of their business. And so, well, I think you can tell from the companies that have that lens of like, we're looking to like serve and nurture our, mm-hmm. our clients, our, our, um, you know, whatever, whoever it is that's involved in the business. Yeah. I think it's really beautiful. And I think, you know, we've definitely, as now going the other way is like when you do have control, I'm in complete control of who I hire, who I work with, who I support, who I invest in. And I would like to think that that is my mantra is, you know, being of service and finding people that have gifts that I think could transform Mm -hmm. and serve other people and then how to get those gifts in front of them. And I, I think we do a pretty good job at that, but Um, that goes to my next question is your relationship with your clients or with your readers or with your customers. And I'm really curious for you because I have like a much smaller scale relationship with my clients because I have like, you know, 10 clients on my plate at one time and who I'm serving for the most part, you know, the podcast has a different audience, but uh, more likely than not, the people that listen to this podcast are never actually going to pay me sure. anything for my services, which is so fine. I, I love providing value and doing exactly what we're doing right now. I feel like this is so important, but when you have 50 million <laughs> customers <laughs> or clients or readers, what is that relationship like? And one, what is that relationship like? And two, do you find like a common thread throughout all of your readers that you talk to or like, a, yeah. um, you know, something that everyone has in common? Yeah, great questions. I love talking about our readers. <laughs> it's definitely like why we do what we do every day. They're who we're working for. Our reader is my boss. You know, it's like who we're serving yes. and looking to make happy and It's not an exaggeration to say we're obsessed with our readers and like literally everything about our brand positioning and our editorial strategy is informed by a really deep curiosity about our audience and their evolving interests related to sustainability and beyond. And um, so we have a lot of mechanisms by which we engage like pretty deeply with our readers. We do that through community feedback, which can be, you know, across all types of digital forms. We, we have a daily newsletter. We get tons of replies and responses to that every day. Obviously social media is a place where we're like constantly in conversations and messages with our readers. Um, 
there's site comments where we're engaging with readers. We constantly do surveys uh, to get their thoughts. And then we have in-person gatherings too, where we can talk, wow. you know, face to face. And so, yeah, I mean, that's informed our, our editorial strategy. We do not publish on a whim. We don't publish by accident. We don't throw spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. Like we, we leverage, you know, social trends and keyword research, but most importantly, like this conversation we're having with our readers to like really carefully craft content that she or he is actually interested in reading and engaging with. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's such a rich and rewarding, like aspect of our work and, and our mission. And in terms of themes, you know, it's, it's actually shocking how much people experience the same phenomenon. Like they, they Mm -hmm. experience the same, um, challenges when it comes to sustainability and mindful living and the same desires. And it was so, I think an example of this, that was really, has been really, you know, wonderful and enriching for our message was a couple of years ago, getting just a ton of reader dialogue and conversation around the, the slow fashion movement being inclusive to all sizes, size ranges Mm -hmm. and size inclusivity. And, you know, even three or four years ago, there were like hardly any brands that were sustainable. And this is a larger conversation in fashion outside of sustainability as well. But yeah, you know, very few brands that were like making quality garments for extended size ranges, which just like doesn't match up at all to the population and demand and all of that. And, and we've seen that as, you know, a social issue and it is a deeply felt issue in our community and our, among our readers. And so I think that's, that's one aspect or that's one example of, of a conversation we started having with our readers that then we were able to leverage with the brands we worked with to be like, Hey, we can't feature you (laughs) until you have diversity represented in your models, in your, you know, in your sizing and, um, until this becomes a core value for you, like we can't, bring you to our readers. Um, and so I think that is so cool because you actually are now with, because of the size of your publication, you can actually have sway totally on these brands. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah. It's a really awesome, like feedback loop to be able to, listen to our audience, listen to their concerns, and then have access to brands that care, you know, what our audience thinks and to be able to, to have that really, um, I think productive conversation, but yeah, we, we love, we love our audience very much. And the, and, um, the people that, that make up our readers and, and that's why we do it we do is to like serve them and nurture them and come alongside them and, and like entertain them and make their day a little bit better. And that's part of our mission with our daily newsletter. Like it's a really bright, sweet kind of moment for people. Um, it, it's published at 5am every morning. Um, and you know, in a world that's like really kind of cluttered and heavy, especially when it comes to like news or, or other things you might be reading first thing in the morning. Like we want to bring this sense of, of lightness and warmth and, um, you know, 
positivity. <laughs> and yeah. um, so that's been a really fun exploration. I love it. So I have a business question for you. Oh. I'm always thinking with my marketing hat on and um, following in, in these days, basically your size of following is actually irrelevant. It's engagement that matters. Yeah. So for example, I'm sure you know this, but you know, if you were to run an ad, a retargeting ad, you can't actually target your followers. You can only target people who have engaged with you in yeah. a certain amount of time and your engagement is off the charts. And I'm learning, you know, after listening to you talk, how, you know, much effort you put into engaging with your audience, yeah. but um, for people starting out or for people that their engagement is down and they're sort of like struggling in this area, do you have like a couple tips or like one yeah. piece of advice for people to actually get people to really engage more than just like tag a friend below or like, oh, you know, reply with this? But um, how did you guys earlier on, um, you know, really get these conversations and the engagement so big? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think the number, the number one thing that you have to check off first is like it, your content needs to be amazing <laughs> to stand yeah. out. Content is king. Yeah, it is. And like, it's so cluttered right now that if content is inauthentic, if it doesn't provide value, if it's not the best answer for the question you're trying to, you know, solve for your audience, then, it, then you don't have, a, you haven't set yourself up for success. Um, so investing in content is, is I think number one, what that means for us looks like we have an extremely slow editorial process. Like we're working for months on a piece of content at times, if that's what mm -hmm. it takes to be, to be like the best piece of content on the internet for whatever topic we're, we're discussing. Um, but then in terms of once content is published, I think having like a really strong ground game, like grassroots ground game where, yes. you know, not being afraid to like just do the work of commenting on other people's content, you know, making introductions digitally and in real life, you know, having conversations with people. One thing that we do is our, our social media lead who's, you know, fairly senior and we have a, a team of that supports her, but she directly on Instagram will reach out to 50 people a month that are engaged with us and just be like, Hey, I'm Alyssa. Like you're, I've seen that you're on this community, a part of this community, like welcome them, ask them what they want to see more of. You know, there are like robots that will do that for you. Like we are like people feel it when you do it for real, you know, yeah. and they feel it when it's like, you know, that's been such a cool channel. A lot of people respond to her and are like, oh my God, yeah, like I'd really love to see more like zero waste beauty practices. Like I'm just, you know, all my products are plastic and like, I don't know how to simplify there, you know, and we're like, great we'll create a content around that. And like, here's some links to content we already have on the topic. So it's like taking the time to just have the conversations across all channels. And we respond to a huge volume of reader emails that we get. Um, and that, that takes hours and days and like manpower, you know, but it's definitely, yeah. I think very valuable. 
Yeah, I just you're I'm like shaking my head like huge right now because, you know, I just I had to submit an article for this um, for this online thing that's happening. And it was like biggest marketing tips from like female founders. And my biggest tip is focus on your product and making your product better. Like, and then like the grassroots engagement. And I think, you know, when I have somebody come on the podcast, there's something about you, obviously from afar that strikes me as authentic and somebody that I want to get to know. But my question I always want to answer for myself, you know, selfishly and the listeners is, what makes companies successful and what makes companies fail? Um, What makes companies fail is equally as interesting. Interesting. (laughs) And I always, you know, find out by halfway or even earlier on in the conversation, like authenticity always wins. And this is just another example of authenticity winning and taking the time and not taking shortcuts and actually being of service and actually walking the talk. And it's just so exciting to me. Like I'm sitting here just like nodding over and over again, listening to you speak because it's such a win for me. I feel like it's so silly, but when I meet someone like you that has the audience that you have and has the success that you have and the financial backing and all of these things pointing towards success and it's like, oh, what an exhale. I don't know how (laughs) how else to say it, if you know what I mean, but it's just, um, it's so clear to me why companies like yours are succeeding. And the way that you answered that question, like couldn't have been better. And and it's exactly what I would tell people too. And like, not having a robot reach out, actually spending the time investing in people, getting to know your readers, like all of the things that you just can't cut corners on. And just hearing you say all of that, it's like another huge win for authenticity. And I really do feel like, and I'm, I'm sure you feel this way too, as you know, if business owner in this space, that this is the trend, like people can smell bullshit a mile away now. And when you're posting something that's not authentic, when you're, you know, having robots mass email or reach out or things like that, and it's not personal, you know, people want to feel seen like first and foremost, and you make someone feel seen like, you know, you're, you said someone's reaching out personally, giving them recommendations, personally making that connection. They'll be loyal. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's a win-win because that person is getting value from you and yeah. you've just gained a loyal customer. Yeah. So it's like, why would we do it any other way? Yeah. But anyway, speaking of uh, authenticity that, well, actually, before I get to my last question, did I hear that your husband is your business partner? He is not. Is that true? No. <laughs> so okay. He, he, we started, we started the publication together when he, um, when we first when we first started it, he runs an advertising agency here in LA. Um, But we, yeah, I mean, we got to, it was probably like two or three years into the business. I didn't go full-time till maybe a year and a half in. And then it was maybe at the two-year mark, we were like, okay, we're financially sustainable in a Mm. way to bring him on full-time too. And we were like, how about we save our marriage and we stay, we don't work together full time, which I know works for so many people. And I, I, I think that's fantastic. And Blake is an advisor for us and he's Mm. a wonderful resource. Um, and our, you know, he and I, our careers like overlap in a really lovely way here in LA, but, um, but yeah, I think that was like a kind of a fun, 
an interesting uh, personal discovery about ourselves and each other to realize like how much we, how, I guess, special and important our relationship is. We've been together 10 years, married for eight and, um, you know, for some people it works and other people work. Yeah. Well, I'm, I asked when I heard you say that, cause I'm like, oh, could it be because yeah. my husband is my business partner yeah, and it's really yeah. hard to, it, it's really hard to find, um, people who want to work together <laughs> as couples. And we're in that place actually now where, you know, we actually just moved. I was telling you before we started recording and we've moved our office out of our our house because we used to work from home and it's just been a few weeks. And I swear my marriage is like completely different because, um, there isn't even, I happen to be recording this right now from home, but it's in our guest room, like my shrine room where it's like all my stuff. And you know, he, he can be out there and not hearing what I'm saying all day and just listening to each other talk all day and having now a separate office and I can be here and he can be there. It's just made such a big difference, but we are, um, I think, you know, for the first couple of years, we're going into year three now of this company and we're getting into a place where we can, uh, divvy up the roles in a way that I actually don't know what he's doing anymore all day. And it's like trending to the direction of like separating more and more for the sake of our marriage. Um, and it's just, it's a really fun and hard conversation, yeah. but it sounds like you guys have found a way, um, you're, you're interested in the same things and, you know, you can overlap, um, your skills and your genius okay. so well. And anyway, so yeah, I was just curious about well, that. I love hearing from people that, that do make it work and I admire you. <laughs> like that. Um, yeah. And I do hear like from friends that are doing it. It's like when you have like you and your husband have your separate roles within the company or the organization and that's clearly defined, then I think that makes for a, a probably much, (laughs) much better. um, We're also hiring a lot. And so, you know, now he has a team under him and I have a team under me, but at the beginning it was a lot of, and it's great. It's why I love him. It's why I married him um, because we're so different and we, our clients know because we're, you know, we will argue something to the, you know, we'll go home at the end of the day and still be talking about a decision for a client. And so they're happy because they know the best decision will win. (laughs) You know, our differences are, you know, what make us so successful, but it's also very challenging at times. And, um, I think it's a great conversation to have. We're newly married. And so I don't have a ton of married friends or people to sort of, you know, ask advice on, especially people who work together. So anyway, my last question for you is around investing. Um, because now you also invest in companies and, um, I just read that on your site and we talked a little bit about it earlier on. And, um, for somebody that's in the startup phase of a company that is authentically (laughs) for good, what are the main things that you are looking for as an investor, because there has to be a business component to this, of course, or a money component. Um, So that aside, I guess, what do you look for? Yeah. I mean, well, mostly it's that. I mean, from a financial perspective, I'm looking for companies that have the opportunity to have huge market share and scale in, in a really meaningful way. And that's, you know, the only way that it really makes sense for me. But in terms of like 
ethics and sustainability, it's a lot of the same values that we would apply to any brand that we feature on The Good Trade. Um, but more specifically, my focus and and kind of thesis to my investing is also focused on minority um, founders. So, you know, last year, mm. female founders received less than 3% of VC funding. And when I started The Good Trade, I didn't see investors that looked like me or shared my values. And of course, they're out there, but it's not the mainstream. Um and so I think being able to come alongside, you know, really early stage companies with expertise in digital media, but it is where is the value that I bring to the table. And of course, I'm looking for a financial return, but also to support and the and defend the social mission and commitment to sustainability, where I don't think, you know, some of my counterparts in the investing space are as committed to that. Um, but yeah. Yeah, but then I also focus on like early stage digital disruptors, like D to C companies um, are still certainly, you know, on the rise, and and people are um, changing kind of their their consumer behavior to shop online and directly, and they want they want good branding, and um, so all of that is you know important as well. Very cool. Yeah, I just always find that conversation to be so interesting because obviously from a financial standpoint, we're all looking for the same thing <laughs> when yeah. you're looking to invest. But I think that the space has really shifted and changed. And yeah, I just really appreciate that you exist and that you're doing this work. And it's like, you know, I get a little bit stressed at times yeah. thinking about all of the work I should be doing yeah. or what I could be doing and where I should be spending my time and who I should be working with. And then I have conversations like this and it's like, whew, okay, you don't have to do everything. Yeah. There's somebody out there a lot smarter at you than this, a lot better than you at this. And she's taking care of it. And, you know, <laughs> for me, I think by, you know, recommending the good trade, by having you on the podcast and making decisions that I've been making and, and embarrassed to say that it's, I think, you know, sustainability has been obviously on my mind for some years, but I was one of those people earlier on that was like, what kind of difference sure. can I make? Like, yeah. which is funny because I'm actually quite an optimistic person, sure. but around environmentalism and sustainability, I like had this pessimistic point of view and now I, I don't have that view anymore. Yeah. And I think it's because of people like you and companies like yours that make it simple and make it so obvious. <laughs> it's like, you yeah. can't not. And I hope that that's the way of the future. It's just like, you can't not. And I'm just, you know, I, I usually end by asking questions about authenticity and inauthenticity, but I I don't feel like I need to here. I think I've learned so much and what you're doing is, is truly authentic and wonderful. And I'm going to, you know, put the good trade in show notes and hope to talk to you again. And um, if there are any, if there are any other calls to action, I don't know what's the best way to just to support you and, and your mission. Yeah, I think for new um, readers or people to our community, 
The Daily Good is our daily newsletter, and it's a great place to kind of start to kind of understand the message. But then we also post like our top performing articles there and top engaged articles there so that people can can kind of get an introduction to to the message and find resources that are helpful to them. Um, yeah, so that's a great place to start. And thank you so much for having me me on. Yeah, this has been such a beautiful way to start my day and you have such mm. a beautiful brand. I mean, I feel like I could ask you questions about brand and marketing forever, but <laughs> we can save that for another time. And um, I hope to I hope to talk to you again soon um, and I will continue to support. I just signed up for the Daily Good as you were um, speaking. <laughs> and I think you know, just by this interview, you didn't have to make a sell. Um, and I just really appreciate um, that you are, you know, sort of the voice of this thing, because when something is good, I feel like the product sells itself <laughs> and marketing is just a beautiful way to get that product in front of more people. So uh, this was really awesome. I learned so much. And to all of my listeners, um, I hope you subscribe with me. And until next time, keep growing. Keep growing.